0: Chapter 14. Of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14. She was marching home. No, I couldn't fall in love with him. I like him very much, but he's too much of a recluse. Could I kiss him? No, no. Guy Pollock at twenty six, I could have kissed him then, maybe even if I were married to someone else, and probably I'd have been glib in persuading myself that it wasn't really wrong. The amazing thing is that I'm not more amazed at myself. I, the virtuous young matron, am I to be trusted? If the Prince Charming came... A gopher-prairie housewife, married a year, and yearning for a Prince Charming like a backfish of sixteen. They say that marriage is a magic change. But I'm not changed. But.... No, I wouldn't want to fall in love, even if the prince did come. I wouldn't want to hurt Will. I am fond of Will, I am. He doesn't stir me, not any longer, but I depend on him. He is home and children. I wonder when we will begin to have children. I do want them. I wonder whether I remember to tell B to have hominy to-morrow instead of oatmeal. She will have gone to bed by now. Perhaps I'll be up early enough. Ever so fond of Will. I wouldn't hurt him, even if I had to lose the mad love. If the prince came, I'd look once at him and run. Darn fast! Oh, Carol, you are not heroic nor fine. You are the immutable vulgar young female. But I'm not the faithless wife who enjoys confiding that she's misunderstood. Oh, I'm not, I'm not! Am I?" At least I didn't whisper to Guy about Will's faults and his blindness to my remarkable soul. I didn't. Matter of fact, Will probably understands me perfectly. If only... If he would just back me up in rousing the town! How many! how incredibly many wives there must be who tingle over the first Guy Pollock who smiles at them! No, I will not be one of that herd of yearners, the coy virgin brides! Yet, probably, if the Prince were young and dared to face life.... I'm not half as well oriented as that Mrs. Dillon, so obviously adoring her dentist, and seeing Guy only as an eccentric fogey, They weren't silk, Mrs. Dillon's stockings, they were Lyle. Her legs are nice and slim, but no nicer than mine. I hate cotton tops on silk stockings. Are my ankles getting fat? I will not have fat ankles." No, I am fond of Will. His work. One farmer he pulls through diphtheria is worth all my yammering for a castle in Spain. A castle with baths. This hat is so tight. I must stretch it. Guy liked it. There's the house. I'm awfully chilly. Time to get out the fur coat. I wonder if I'll ever have a beaver coat. is not the same thing. Beaver glossy. Like to run my fingers over it. Guy's mustache like beaver. How utterly absurd. I am, I am fond of Will, and can't I ever find another word than Fond? He's home, he'll think I was out late. Why can't he ever remember to pull down the shades? sigh Bogart and all the beastly boys peeping in. But, the poor dear, he's absent-minded about minute, minouche whatever the word is. He has so much worry and work, while I do nothing but jabber to be. I mustn't forget the hominy. She was flying into the hall. Kennicott looked up from the Journal of the American Medical Society. "'Hello! What time did you get back?' she cried. "'About nine. You've been gadding. Here it is past eleven. Good-natured, yet not quite approving. Did it feel neglected? "'Well, you didn't remember to close the lower draft in the furnace.' "'Oh, I'm so sorry but I don't often forget things like that, do I?" She dropped into his lap and, after he had jerked back his head to save his eyeglasses and removed the glasses and settled her in a position less cramping to his legs, and casually cleared his throat, he kissed her amiably and remarked, "'Nope, I must say you're fairly good about things like that. I wasn't kicking, I just meant I wouldn't want the fire to go out on us. Leave that draught open and the fire might burn up and go out on us. And the nights are beginning to get pretty cold again. Pretty cold on my drive. I put the side curtains up, it was so chilly. But the generator is working all right now. Yes, it is chilly. But I feel fine after my walk." Go walking? I went up to see the Perrys." By a definite act of will she added the truth. They weren't in and I saw Guy Pollock, dropped into his office. Why, you haven't been sitting and chinning with him till eleven o'clock. Of course there were some other people there and... Will, what do you think of Dr. Westlake?" Westlake? Why? I noticed him on the street today. Was he limping? If the poor fish would have his teeth x-rayed, I'll bet nine and a half cents he'd find an abscess there. Rheumatism, he calls it. Rheumatism hell! He's behind the times! Wonder he doesn't bleed himself!" Well.... a profound and serious yawn. I hate to break up the party, but it's getting late, and a doctor never knows when he'll get routed out before morning.... She remembered that he had given this explanation, in these words, not less than thirty times in the year. I guess we'd better be trotting up to bed. I've wound the clock and looked at the furnace, did you lock the front door when you came in?" They trailed upstairs, after he had turned out the lights and twice tested the front door to make sure it was fast. While they talked they were preparing for bed. Carol still sought to maintain privacy by undressing behind the screen of the closet door. Kennecott was not so reticent. To-night, as every night, she was irritated by having to push the old plush chair out of the way before she could open the closet door. Every time she opened the door she shoved the chair. Ten times an hour. But Kennicott liked to have the chair in the room and there was no place for it except in front of the closet. She pushed it, felt angry, hid her anger. Kennicott was yawning, more portentously. The room smelled stale. She shrugged and became chatty. You were speaking of Dr. Westlake. Tell me, you've never summed him up. Is he really a good doctor?" Oh yes, he's a wise old coot. There, you see, there is no medical rivalry. Not in my house," she said triumphantly to Guy Pollock. She hung her silk petticoat on a closet-hook and went on. Dr. Westlake is so gentle and scholarly. Well, I don't know as I'd say he was such a whale of a scholar. I've always had a suspicion he did a good deal of foreflushing about that. He likes to have people think he keeps up his French and Greek and Lord knows what all. And he's always got an old Dago book lying around in the sitting-room. But I've got a hunch he reads detective stories about like the rest of us. And I don't know where he'd ever learned so doggone many languages anyway. He kind of lets people assume he went to Harvard or Berlin or Oxford or somewhere, but I looked him up in the medical register, and he graduated from a hit college in Pennsylvania way back in 1861. But, this is the important thing, is he an honest doctor?" How do you mean honest? Depends on what you mean. Suppose you were sick, would you call him in? Would you let me call him in? Not if I were well enough to cuss and bite, I wouldn't. No, sir. I wouldn't have the old fake in the house. Makes me tired, his everlasting palavering and soft-soaping. He's all right for an ordinary bellyache or holding some fool woman's hand, but I wouldn't call him in for an honest-to-God illness, not much I wouldn't, no, sir. You know I don't do much backbiting, but the same time... I'll tell you, Carrie, I've never got over being sore at Westlake for the way he treated Mrs. Jonderquist. Nothing the matter with her, what she really needed was a rest, but Westlake kept calling on her and calling on her for weeks, almost every day and sent her a good big fat bill, too, you can bet. I never did forgive him for that. Nice, decent, hard-working people like the Jondrequists." In her Batiste nightgown she was standing at the Bureau engaged in the invariable rites of wishing that she had a real dressing-table with a triple mirror, of bending toward the streaky glass and raising her chin to inspect a pinhead mole on her throat, and finally of brushing her hair. In rhythm to the strokes she went on. But Will, there isn't any of what you might call financial rivalry between you and the partners, Westlake and McGannum, is there?" He flipped into bed, with a solemn back somersault and a ludicrous kick of his heels, as he tucked his legs under the blankets. He snorted, "'Lord, no! I never begrudge any man a nickel he can get away from me, fairly!' But is Westlake fair? Isn't he sly?' Sly isn't the word. He's a fox, that boy. She saw Guy Pollock's grin in the mirror. She flushed. Kennicott, with his arms behind his head, was yawning. Yup, he's smooth, too smooth. But I bet I make pretty near as much as Westlake and McGannim Bull together, though I never wanted to grab more than my just chair. If anybody wants to go to the partners instead of to me, that's his business, though I must say it makes me tired when Weslake gets hold of the Dawsons. Here, Luke Dawson had been coming to me for every toe-ache and headache and a lot of little things that just wasted my time, and then, when his grandchild was here last summer and had a summer complaint, I suppose, or something like that, probably, you know, the time you and I drove up to Lacquemure.... Why, Westlake got hold of Ma Dawson and scared her to death, and made her think the kid had appendicitis, and by golly, if he and McGannum didn't operate, and hollered their heads off about the terrible adhesions they found, and what a regular Charlie and Will Mayo they were for classy surgery. They led on that if they'd waited two hours more, the kid would have developed peritonitis and God knows what all. And then they collected a nice fat hundred and fifty dollars. And probably they'd have charged three hundred, if they hadn't been afraid of me. I'm no hog, but I certainly do hate to give old Luke ten dollars' worth of advice for a dollar and a half and then see a hundred and fifty go glimmering. And if I can't do a better pendectomy than either Westlake or McGannum, I'll eat my hat." As she crept into bed she was dazzled by Guy's blazing grin. She experimented. But Westlake is cleverer than his son-in-law, don't you think? Yes, Westlake may be old-fashioned and all that, but he's got a certain amount of intuition while McGannum goes into everything bull-headed and butts his way through like a damn yahoo and tries to argue his patients into having whatever he diagnoses them as having. About the best thing Mac can do is stick to baby-snatching. He's just about on a par with this bone-pounding chiropractor female, Mrs. Matty Gooch. Mrs. Westlake and Mrs. McGannum, though, they're nice. They've been awfully cordial to me. Well, no reason why they shouldn't be, is there? Oh, they're nice enough, though you can bet your bottom dollar they're both plugging for their husbands all the time, trying to get the business. And I don't know as I call it so damn cordial in Mrs. McGannum when I holler at her on the street and she nods back that like she had a sore neck. Still, she's all right. It's Ma Westlake that makes the mischief, pussyfooting around all the time. But I wouldn't trust any Westlake out of the whole lot. And while Mrs. McGannum seems square enough, You don't never want to forget that she's Westlake's daughter. You bet." What about Dr. Gould? Don't you think he's worse than either Westlake or McGannum? He's so cheap—drinking and playing pool and always smoking cigars in such a cocky way. That's all right, now. Terry Gould is a good deal of a tin-horn sport, but he knows a lot about medicine and don't you forget it for one second. She stared down Guy's grin and asked more cheerfully. Is he honest, too?" Oh! Gosh, I'm sleepy! He burrowed beneath the bedclothes in a luxurious stretch and came up like a diver, shaking his head as he complained. How's that? Who? Terry Gould Honest? Don't start me laughing! I'm too nice and sleepy. I didn't say he was honest. I said he had savvy enough to find the index in Gray's anatomy, which is more than McGannum can do. But I didn't say anything about his being honest. He isn't. Terry is crooked as a dog's hind leg. He's done me more than one dirty trick. He told Mrs. Glorbatch, seventeen miles out, that I wasn't up to date in obstetrics. Fat lot of good it did him. She came right in and told me. And Terry's lazy. He let a pneumonia patient choke rather than interrupt a poker game. Oh no, I can't believe. Well now, I'm telling you." Does he play much poker? Dr. Dillon told me that Dr. Gould wanted him to play. Dillon told you what? Where'd you meet Dillon? He's just come to town. He and his wife were at Mr. Pollock's tonight. Say, um, what did you think of them? Didn't Dillon strike you as pretty light-waisted? Why, no. He seemed intelligent. I'm sure he's much more wide-awake than our dentist. Well, now, the old man is a good dentist, he knows his business. And Dillon... I wouldn't cuddle up to the Dillons too close, if I were you. All right for Pollock, and that's none of our business, but we... I think I'd just give the Dillons the glad hand and pass him up." But why? He isn't a rival. That's all right. Kennicott was aggressively awake now. He'll work right in with Westlake and Meganum. Matter of fact, I suspect they were largely responsible for his locating here they'll be sending him patients and he'll send all that he can get hold of to them. I don't trust anybody that's too much hand in glove with Westlake. You give Dillon a shot at some fellow that just bought a farm here and drifts into town to get his teeth looked at, and after Dillon gets through with him, you'll see him edging around to Westlake and McGanum every time." Carol reached for her blouse, which hung on a chair by the bed. She draped it about her shoulders and sat up studying Kennicott her chin in her hands. In the grey light from the small electric bulb down the hall she could see that he was frowning. Will, this is... I must get this straight. Someone said to me the other day that in towns like this, even more than in cities, all the doctors hate each other because of the money. Who said that? It doesn't matter. I'll bet a hat it was your Vida Sherwin. She's a brainy woman. But she'd be a damn sight brainier if she kept her mouth shut and didn't let so much of her brains ooze out that way. Will, oh, Will, that's horrible, aside from the vulgarity. Some ways, Vida is my best friend, even if she had said it, which, as a matter of fact, she didn't. He reared up his thick shoulders in absurd pink and green flannellet pajamas. He sat straight and irritatingly snapped his fingers and growled. Well, if she didn't say it, let's forget her. Doesn't make any difference who said it anyway. The point is that you believe it. God, to think you don't understand me any better than that! Money!" This is the first real quarrel we've ever had, she was agonizing. He thrust out his long arm and snatched his wrinkly vest from a chair. He took out a cigar, a match. He tossed the vest on the floor. He lighted the cigar and puffed savagely. He broke up the match and snapped the fragments at the footboard. She suddenly saw the footboard of the bed as the footstone of the grave of love. The room was drab-colored and ill-ventilated. Kennicott did not believe in opening the windows so darn wide that you heat all the outdoors. The stale air seemed never to change. In the light from the hall there were two lumps of bedclothes with shoulders and tousled heads attached. She begged. I didn't mean to wake you up, dear. And please don't smoke. You've been smoking so much. Please go back to sleep. I'm sorry." Being sorry's all right, but I'm going to tell you one or two things. This falling for anybody say-so about medical jealousy and competition is simply part and parcel of your usual willingness to think the worst you possibly can of us poor dubs in Gopher Prairie. Trouble with women like you is, you always want to argue can't take things the way they are. Got to argue. Well, I'm not going to argue about this in any way, shape, manner or form. Trouble with you is, you don't make any effort to appreciate us. You're so damn superior, and think the city is such a hell of a lot finer place, and you want us to do what you want all the time." That's not true. It's I who make the effort. It's they, it's you who stand back and criticize. I have to come over to the town's opinion. I have to devote myself to their interests. They can't even see my interests, to say nothing of adopting them. I get ever so excited about their old Lake Minimashi and the cottages, but they simply guffaw, in that lovely friendly way you advertise so much, if I speak of wanting to see Tormino also. Sure, Tormina, whatever that is, some nice expensive millionaire colony, I suppose. Sure, that's the idea. Champagne taste and beer income! And make sure that we never have more than a beer income too!" Are you by any chance implying that I am not economical? Well, I didn't intend to, but since you bring it up yourself, I don't mind saying the grocery bills are about twice what they ought to be. Yes, they probably are. I'm not economical. I can't be, thanks to you. Where'd you get that, thanks to you? Please don't be quite so colloquial, or, shall I say, vulgar." I'll be as damn colloquial as I want to. How do you get that, thanks to you? Here about a year ago you jumped me for not remembering to give you money. Well, I'm reasonable. I didn't blame you, and I said I was to blame. But have I ever forgotten it since, practically? No, you haven't, practically. But that isn't it. I ought to have an allowance. I will, too. I must have an agreement for a regular stated amount every month." Fine idea. Of course, a doctor gets a regular stated amount. Sure. A thousand one month, unlucky if he makes a hundred the next. Very well, then, a percentage. Or something else. No matter how much you vary, you can make a rough average for—but what's the idea? What are you trying to get at? Mean to say I'm unreasonable? think I'm so unreliable and tightwad that you've got to tie me down with a contract? By God, that hurts! I thought I'd been pretty generous and decent, and I took a lot of pleasure. Thinks I? She'll be tickled when I hand over this twenty, or fifty, or whatever it was, and now it seems you've been wanting to make it a kind of alimony. Me, like a poor fool, thinking I was liberal all the while, and you.... Please, stop pitying yourself! you're having a beautiful time feeling injured. I admit all you say. Certainly. You've given me money both freely and amiably. Quite as if I were your mistress." Carrie! I mean it! What was a magnificent spectacle of generosity to you was humiliation to me. You gave me money—gave it to your mistress, if she was complacent, and then you—Carrie! Don't interrupt me! then you felt you discharged all obligation. Well, hereafter I'll refuse your money as a gift. Either I'm your partner, in charge of the household department of our business, with a regular budget for it, or else I'm nothing. If I'm to be a mistress, I shall choose my lovers. Oh, I hate it, I hate it, this smirking and hoping for money, and then not even spending it on jewels as a mistress has a right to! But spending it on double boilers and socks for you. Yes, indeed, you're generous. You give a dollar right out. The only proviso is that I must spend it on a tie for you, and you give it when and as you wish. How can I be anything but uneconomical? Oh, well, of course, looking at it that way, I can't shop around, can't buy in large quantities, have to stick to stores where I have a charge account a good deal of the time can't plan because I don't know how much money I can depend on. That's what I pay for your charming sentimentalities about giving so generously. You make me—wait, wait! wait. You know you're exaggerating. You never thought about that mistress stuff till just this minute. Matter of fact, you never have smirked and hoped for money. But, all the same, you may be right. You ought to run the household as a business." I'll figure out a definite plan tomorrow, and hereafter you'll be on a regular amount or percentage, with your own checking account." Oh, that is decent of you! She turned toward him, trying to be affectionate, but his eyes were pink and unlovely in the flare of the match with which he lighted his dead and malodorous cigar. His head drooped, and a ridge of flesh scattered with pale small bristles bulged out under his chin she sat in abeyance till he croaked. No, tisn't specially decent. It's just fair. And God knows I want to be fair. But I expect others to be fair, too. And you're so high and mighty about people. Take Sam Clark. Best soul that ever lived, honest and loyal and a damn good fellow. Yes, and a good shot at ducks, don't forget that. Well, and he is a good shot, too. Sam drops around in the evening to sit and visit, and by golly, just because he takes a dry smoke and rolls his cigar round in his mouth, and maybe spits a few times, you look at him as if he was a hog. Oh, you didn't know I was on to you, and I certainly hope Sam hasn't noticed it, but I never miss it." I have felt that way. Spitting. Ugh. But I'm sorry you caught my thoughts. I tried to be nice, I tried to hide them. Maybe I catch a whole lot more than you think I do." Yes, perhaps you do. And do you know why Sam doesn't light his cigar when he's here? Why? He's so darn afraid you'll be offended if he smokes. You scare him. Every time he speaks of the weather, you jump him because he ain't talking about poetry or Gertie, Goethe or some other highbrow junk. You got him so leery he scarcely dares to come here. Oh, I am sorry though I'm sure it's you who are exaggerating now. Well, now, I don't know as I am. And I can tell you one thing. If you keep on, you'll manage to drive away every friend I've got." That would be horrible of me. You know I don't mean to, Will. What is it about me that frightens Sam, if I do frighten him? Oh, you do, all right. Instead of putting his legs up on another chair and unbuttoning his vest and telling a good story or maybe kidding me about something. He sits on the edge of his chair and tries to make conversation about politics, and he doesn't even cuss, and Sam's never real comfortable unless he can cuss a little. In other words, he isn't comfortable unless he can behave like a peasant in a mud hut. Now that'll be about enough of that. You want to know how you scare him? First you deliberately fire some question at him that you know darn well he can't answer. Any fool could see you were experimenting with him and then you shock him by talking of mistresses or something, like you were doing just now. Of course the pure Samuel never speaks of such erring ladies in his private conversations. Not when there's ladies around, you can bet your life on that." So the impurity lies in failing to pretend that—now, we won't go into all that... eugenics or whatever damn fad you choose to call it. As I say, first you shock him and then you become so darn flighty that nobody can follow you! Either you want to dance, or you bang the piano, or else you get moody as the devil and don't want to talk or anything else! If you must be temperamental, why can't you be that way by yourself?" My dear man, there is nothing I like better than to be by myself occasionally, to have a room of my own. I suppose you expect me to sit here and dream delicately and satisfy my temperamentality while you wander in from the bathroom with lather all over your face and shout, See my brown pants?" Huh! He did not sound impressed. He made no answer. He turned out of bed, his feet making one solid thud on the floor. He marched from the room, a grotesque figure in baggy, Union pajamas. She heard him drawing a drink of water at the bathroom tap. She was furious at the contemptuousness of his exit. She snuggled down in bed and looked away from him as he returned. He ignored her. As he flumped into bed he yawned and casually stated, "'Well, you'll have plenty of privacy when we build a new house.' "'When?' "'Oh, I'll build it all right, don't you fret. But of course I don't expect any credit for it.' Now it was she who grunted, "Ha," huh, and ignored him and felt independent and masterful as she shot up out of bed, turned her back on him, fished a lone and petrified chocolate out of her glove-box in the top right-hand drawer of the bureau, gnawed at it, found that it had coconut filling, said, Damn! wished that she had not said it, so that she might be superior to his colloquialism, and hurled the chocolate into the waste-basket, where it made an evil and mocking clatter among the debris of torn linen collars and toothpaste box. Then, in great dignity and self-dramatization, she returned to bed. All this time he had been talking on, embroidering his assertion that he didn't expect any credit. She was reflecting that he was a rustic, that she hated him, that she had been insane to marry him, that she had married him only because she was tired of work, that she must get her long gloves cleaned, that she would never do anything more for him, and that she mustn't forget his hominy for breakfast. She was roused to attention by his storming. I'm a fool to think about a new house. By the time I get it built, you'll probably have succeeded in your plan to get me completely in Dutch with every friend and every patient I've got. She sat up with a bounce. She said coldly, thank you very much for revealing your real opinion of me. If that's the way you feel, if I'm such a hindrance to you, I can't stay under this roof another minute and I am perfectly well able to earn my own living. I will go at once, and you may get a divorce at your pleasure. What you want is a nice sweet cow of a woman who will enjoy having your dear friends talk about the weather and spit on the floor." "'Tut, don't be a fool!' You will very soon find out whether I'm a fool or not. I mean it. Do you think I stay here one second after I found out that I was injuring you?" At least I have enough sense of justice not to do that." Please stop flying off at tangents, Harry. This—tangents—tangents! Tangents, let me tell you, is isn't a theatre play, it's a serious effort to have us get together on fundamentals. We've both been cranky and said a lot of things we didn't mean. I wish we were a couple of bloomin' poets and just talked about roses and moonshine, but we're human. All right let's cut out jabbing at each other, let's admit we both do fool things. See here, you know you feel superior to folks. You're not as bad as I say, but you're not as good as you say, not by a long shot. What's the reason you're so superior? Why can't you take folks as they are?" Her preparations for stalking out of the doll's house were not yet visible. She mused. I think, perhaps, it's my childhood she halted. When she went on her voice had an artificial sound, her words the bookish quality of emotional meditation. My father was the tenderest man in the world, but he did feel superior to ordinary people. Well, he was. And the Minnesota Valley. I used to sit there on the cliffs above Mankato for hours at a time, my chin in my hand, looking way down the valley, wanting to write poems the shiny tilted roofs below me and the river and beyond it the level fields in the mist and the rim of palisades across. It held my thoughts in. I lived in the valley. But the prairie—all my thoughts go flying off into the big space. Do you think it might be that?" Um, well, maybe, but— Carrie, you always talk so much about getting all you can out of life and not letting the years slip by and here you deliberately go and deprive yourself of a lot of real good home pleasure by not enjoying people unless they wear frock coats and trot out—morning clothes—oh, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you—to a lot of tea-parties. Take Jack Elder. You think Jack hasn't got any ideas about anything but manufacturing and the tariff on lumber. But do you know that Jack is nutty about music?" He'll put a grand opera record on the phonograph and sit and listen to it and close his eyes. Or you take Lime Cass. Ever realize what a well-informed man he is?" But is he? Gopher Prairie calls anybody well-informed who's been through the State Capitol and heard about Gladstone. Now I'm telling you, Lime reads a lot, solid stuff, history. Or take Mart Mahoney, the garage man. He's got a lot of Perry prints of famous pictures in his office. Or old Bingham Playfair, that died here about a year ago, lived seven miles out. He was a captain in the Civil War, and knew General Sherman, and they say he was a miner in Nevada right alongside of Mark Twain. You'll find these characters in all these small towns, and a pile of savvy in every single one of them, if you just dig for it. I know, and I do love them, especially people like Champ Perry. But I can't be so very enthusiastic over the smug-sits like Jack Elder." Then I'm a smug-sit, too, whatever that is. No, you're a scientist. Oh, I will try and get the music out of Mr. Elder. Only why can't he let it come out, instead of being ashamed of it and always talking about hunting dogs? But I will try. Is it all right now?" Sure. But there's one other thing. You might give me some attention, too." That's unjust! You have everything I am. No, I haven't. You think you respect me, you always hand out some spiel about my being so useful, but you never think of me as having ambitions, just as much as you have. Perhaps not. I think of you as being perfectly satisfied. Well, I'm not, not by a long shot. I don't want to be a plugged general practitioner all my life, like Westlake, and die in harness, because I can't get out of it, and have him say, he was a good fellow, but he couldn't save a cent. Not that I care a whoop what they say, after I've kicked in and can't hear him, but I want to put enough money away so you and I can be independent some day, and not have to work unless we feel like it, and I want to have a good house. By golly, I'll have as good a house as anybody in this town. And if we want to travel and see your Tormina or whatever it is, why we can do it, with enough money in our jeans so we won't have to take anything off anybody, or fret about our old age. You never worry about what might happen if we got sick and didn't have a good fat wad salted away, do you?" I don't suppose I do. Well then, I have to do it for you. And if you think for one moment I want to be stuck in this burg all my life and not have a chance to travel and see the different points of interest and all that, then you simply don't get me. I want to have a squint at the world, much as you do, only I'm practical about it. First place, I'm going to make the money. I'm investing in good, safe farmlands. Do you understand why, now?" Yes. Will you try and see if you can't think of me as something more than just a dollar-chasing roughneck? Oh, my dear! I haven't been just. I am difficile. And I won't call on the Dillons. And if Dr. Dillon is working for Westlake and McGannum, I hate him. End of chapter 14. Chapter 15 of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15. That December she was in love with her husband. She romanticized herself not as a great reformer, but as the wife of a country physician. The realities of the doctor's household were colored by her pride. Late at night a step on the wooden porch heard through her confusion of sleep. The storm door opened, fumbling over the inner door panels, the buzz of the electric bell. Kennicott muttering, "'Gol darn it!' but patiently creeping out of bed, remembering to draw the covers up to keep her warm, feeling for slippers and bathrobe clumping downstairs. From below, half heard in her drowsiness, a colloquy in the pidgin-german of the farmers who have forgotten the old country language without learning the new. Hello, Barney, Was willst du?' "'Morgen, doctor, De Frau is ja awful sick. All night she ha been having an awful pain in de belly. How long she been this way? Vee lang, eh? I dunno, maybe two days? Why didn't you come for me yesterday, instead of waking me up out of a sound sleep? Here it is, two o'clock. So spat, varum, eh? Noon aber, I know it, but she got such a lot worse last evening. I thought maybe all the time it go away, but it got a lot worse. Any fever? Well, ja, I think she got fever. Which side is the pain on? Huh? Das Schmerz Div Which side is it on? Here? So right here it is. Any rigidity there? Huh? Is it rigid? Stiff? I mean, does the belly feel hard to the fingers? I dunno, she ain't said yet. What's she been eating? Well, I tig about vodvi always eat. Maybe corn beef and cabbage and sausage, Aunt Sovita? Doc, ze weint immer, all the time she holler like hell. I wish you come. Well, all right, but you call me earlier next time. Look here, Barney, you better install a phone. Telephone Hobbin. Some of you Dutchmen will be dying one of these days before you can fetch the doctor. The door closing. Barney's wagon, the wheel silent in the snow, but the wagon-body rattling, Kennicott clicking the receiver-hook to rouse the night telephone operator, giving a number, waiting, cursing mildly, waiting again, and at last growling, "'Hello, Gus, this is the doctor. Say, uh, send me up a team. Guess snow's too thick for a machine. Going eight miles south. All right. Huh? The hell I will! Don't you go back to sleep. Huh? Well, that's all right now. You didn't wait so very darn long. All right, Gus. Shoot her along. Bye. His step on the stairs, his quiet moving about the frigid room while he dressed, his abstracted and meaningless cough. She was supposed to be asleep. She was too exquisitely drowsy to break the charm by speaking. On a slip of paper laid on the bureau, she could hear the pencil grinding against the marble slab, he wrote his destination. He went out hungry, chilly, unprotesting. And she, before she fell asleep again, loved him for his sturdiness, and saw the drama of his riding by night to the frightened household on the distant farm, pictured children standing at a window, waiting for him. He suddenly had in her eyes the heroism of a wireless operator on a ship in a collision, of an explorer, fever-clawed, deserted by his bearers, but going on, jungle, going. At six, when the light faltered in as through ground glass and bleakly identified the chairs as gray rectangles, she heard his step on the porch, heard him at the furnace, the rattle of shaking the grate, the slow grinding removal of ashes, the shovel thrust into the coal-bin, the abrupt clatter of the coal as it flew into the firebox, the fussy regulation of draughts, the daily sounds of a gopher-prairie life, now first appealing to her as something brave and enduring. Many colored and free. She visioned the firebox. Flames turned to lemon and metallic gold as the coal dust sifted over them. Thin, twisty flutters of purple, ghost flames which gave no light, slipping up between the dark, banked coals. It was luxurious in bed, and the house would be warm for her when she rose, she reflected. What a worthless cat she was! What were her aspirations beside his capability? She awoke again, as he dropped into bed. "'Seems just a few minutes ago that you started out.' "'I've been away four hours. I've operated on a woman for appendicitis in a Dutch kitchen. Came awful close to losing her, too, but I pulled her through all right. Close squeak. Barney says he shot ten rabbits last Sunday.' He was instantly asleep one hour of rest before he had to be up and ready for the farmers who came in early. She marveled that in what was to her but a night-blurred moment, he should have been in a distant place, have taken charge of a strange house, have slashed a woman, saved a life. What wonder he detested the lazy Westlake and Meganum! How could the easy guy Pollock understand this skill and endurance? Then Kennicott was grumbling. Seven-fifteen aren't you ever going to get up for breakfast?" And he was not a hero scientist but a rather irritable and commonplace man who needed a shave. They had coffee, griddle-cakes and sausages and talked about Mrs. McGannum's atrocious alligator-hide belt. Night witchery and morning delusion were alike forgotten in the march of realities and days. Two. Familiar to the doctor's wife was the man with an injured leg, driven in from the country on a Sunday afternoon and brought to the house. He sat in a rocker in the back of a lumber wagon, his face pale from the anguish of the jolting. His leg was thrust out before him, resting on a starch-box and covered with a leather-bound horse-blanket. His drab, courageous wife drove the wagon, and she helped Kennicott support him as he hobbled up the steps into the house. Fellow cut his leg with an axe! Pretty bad gash! Halver Nelson, nine miles out, Kennicott observed. Carol fluttered at the back of the room, childishly excited when she was sent to fetch towels and a basin of water. Kennicott lifted the farmer into a chair and chuckled, There we are, Halver. We'll have you out fixing fences and drinking aquavit in a month. The farmwife sat on the couch, expressionless, bulky in a man's dogskin coat and unplumbed layers of jackets. The flowery silk handkerchief which she had worn over her head now hung about her seam neck. Her white wool gloves lay in her lap. Kennicott drew from the injured leg the thick red German sock, the innumerous other socks of grey and white wool, then the spiral bandage. The leg was an unwholesome dead white, with the black hairs feeble and thin and flattened, and the scar a puckered line of crimson. Surely, Carol shuddered, this was not human flesh, the rosy, shining tissue of the amorous poets. Kennicott examined the scar, smiled at Halvor and his wife, chanted, "'Fine, bagosh, couldn't be better!' The Nelsons looked deprecating. The farmer nodded a cue to his wife and she mourned, "Well, how much we going to owe you, doctor?' "'I guess it'll be... let's see, one drive out and two calls. I guess it'll be about eleven dollars in all, Lena. I dunno if we can pay you just a little while, Doctor. Kennicott lumbered over to her, patted her shoulder, roared, "Why, Lord love you, sister! I won't worry if I never get it. You pay me next fall when you get your crop." Carrie, suppose you or B could shake up a cup of coffee and some cold lamb for the Nelsons? They got a long, cold drive ahead. Three. He had been gone since morning. Her eyes ached with reading. Vida Sherwin could not come to tea. She wandered through the house, empty as the bleary street without. The problem of, will the doctor be home in time for supper, or shall I sit down without him, was important in the household. Six was the rigid, the canonical supper hour, but at half-past six he had not come. Much speculation with B. Had the obstetrical case taken longer than he had expected? Had he been called somewhere else? Was the snow much heavier out in the country, so that he should have taken a buggy or even a cutter instead of the car? Here in town it had melted a lot, but still. A honking, a shout, the motor engine raced before it was shut off. She hurried to the window. The car was a monster at rest after furious adventures. The headlights blazed on the clots of ice in the road, so that the tiniest lumps gave mountainous shadows, and the taillight cast a circle of ruby on the snow behind. Kennicott was opening the door, crying, here we are, old girl, got stuck a couple times, but we made it, by golly we made it, and here we be, come on, food, eatin's. She rushed to him, patted his fur coat. The long hair smooth but chilly to her fingers. She joyously summoned B. All right, he's here. We'll sit right down. 4. There were, to inform the doctor's wife of his successes, no clapping audiences, nor book reviews, nor honorary degrees. But there was a letter written by a German farmer recently moved from Minnesota to Saskatchewan. Dear, sir. As you have been trading me for a few weeks this summer, and seen what is wrong with me, so in regarding to that I want to thank you. The doctor here say what shot be wrong with me, and they give me some medicine, but it didn't help me like what you did. Now they claim that I won't need any medicine at all. What you think?" Well, I haven't been taking anything for about one and a half month, but I don't get better, so I like to hear what you think about it. I feel like this discomfortable feeling around the stomach after eating, and that pain around the heart and down the arm and about three to three and a half hour after eating I feel weak-like and dizzy and a dull headache. Now you just let me know what you think about me, I do what you say." 5 She encountered Guy Pollock at the drug store. He looked at her as though he had a right to. He spoke softly. "'I haven't seen you the last few days.' "'No, I've been out in the country with Will several times. He so—' "'Do you know that people like you and me can never understand people like him? We're a pair of hypocritical loafers, you and I, while he quietly goes and does things.' She nodded and smiled and was very busy about purchasing boric acid. He stared after her and slipped away. When she found that he was gone, she was slightly disconcerted. 6. She could, at times, agree with Kennicott that the shaving and corsets familiarity of married life was not dreary vulgarity, but a wholesome frankness, that artificial reticences might merely be irritating. She was not much disturbed when, for hours, he sat about the living room in his honest socks. But she would not listen to his theory that all this romance stuff is simply moonshine. Elegant when you're courting, but no use busting yourself keeping it up all your life. She thought of surprises, games to vary the days. She knitted an astounding purple scarf, which she hid under his supper plate. When he discovered it, he looked embarrassed and gasped, Is today an anniversary or something? Gosh, I'd forgotten it. Once she filled a thermos bottle with hot coffee, a cornflakes box with cookies just baked by B, and bustled to his office at three in the afternoon. She hid her bundles in the hall and peeped in. The office was shabby. Kennicott had inherited it from a medical predecessor, and changed it only by adding a white enameled operating table, a sterilizer, a rent ray apparatus and a small portable typewriter. It was a suite of two rooms a waiting-room with straight chairs, shaky pine-table, and those coverless and unknown magazines which are found only in the offices of dentists and doctors. The room beyond, looking on Main Street, was business office, consulting room, operating room, and, in an alcove, bacteriological and chemical laboratory. The wooden floors of both rooms were bare. The furniture was brown and scaly. Waiting for the doctor were two women as still as though they were paralyzed, and a man in a railroad brakeman's uniform, holding his bandaged right hand with his tanned left. They stared at Carol. She sat modestly in a stiff chair, feeling frivolous and out of place. Kennicott appeared at the inner door, ushering out a bleached man with a trickle of wan beard, and consoling him. All right, Dad, be careful about the sugar. And mind the diet I gave you." get the prescription filled and come in and see me next week. Say, uh, better, uh, better not drink too much beer. All right, Dad." His voice was artificially hearty. He looked absently at Carol. He was a medical machine now, not a domestic machine. What is it, Carrie? he droned. No hurry, just wanted to say hello. Well, Self-pity, because he did not divine that this was a surprise party, rendered her sad and interesting to herself, and she had the pleasure of the martyrs in saying bravely to him, ''It's nothing special. If you're busy long, I'll trot home.'' While she waited, she ceased to pity and began to mock herself. For the first time, she observed the waiting-room. Oh, yes, the doctor's family had to have ob panels and a wide couch and an electric percolator, but any hole was good enough for sick, tired, common people, who were nothing but the one means and excuse for the doctors existing. No, she couldn't blame Kennicott. He was satisfied by the shabby chairs. He put up with them as his patients did. It was her neglected province, she who had been going about talking of rebuilding the whole town. When the patients were gone, she brought in her bundles. What's those? wondered Kennicott. Turn your back, look out of the window. He obeyed, not very much bored. When she cried, Now! a feast of cookies and small hard candies and hot coffee was spread on the roll-top desk in the inner room. His broad face lightened. That's a new one on me! Never was more surprised in my life! And by golly, I believe I am hungry! Say, this is fine! When the first exhilaration of the surprise had declined, she demanded, Will, I'm going to refurnish your waiting-room. What's the matter with it? It's all right. It's not. It's hideous. We can afford to give your patients a better place. And it would be good for business. She felt tremendously politic. Rats, I don't worry about the business. You look here now. As I told you, Just because I like to tuck a few dollars away, I'll be switched if I'll stand for your thinking I'm nothing but a dollar chasing. Stop it! Quick! I'm not hurting your feelings! I'm not criticizing! I'm the adoring least one of thy harem! I just mean----' Two days later, with pictures, wicker chairs, a rug, she had made the waiting-room habitable, and Kennicott admitted, ''Does look a lot better. Never thought much about it guess I need being bullied." She was convinced that she was gloriously content in her career as doctor's wife. Seven. She tried to free herself from the speculation and disillusionment which had been twitching at her, sought to dismiss all the opinionation of an insurgent era. She wanted to shine upon the veal-faced, bristly-bearded Lyman Cass as much as upon Miles Bjornstam or Guy Pollock she gave a reception for the Thanatopsis Club. But her real acquiring of merit was in calling upon that Mrs. Bogart, whose gossipy good opinion was so valuable to a doctor. Though the Bogart house was next door, she had entered it but three times. Now she put on her moleskin cap, which made her face small and innocent, she rubbed off the traces of a lipstick, and fled across the alley before her admirable resolution should sneak away. The age of houses, like the age of men, was small relation to their years. The dull green cottage of the good widow Bogart was twenty years old, but it had the antiquity of Cheops and the smell of mummy-dust. Its neatness rebuked the street. The two stones by the path were painted yellow. The outhouse was so overmodestly modestly masked with vines and lattice that it was not concealed at all. The last iron dog remaining in Gopher Prairie stood among whitewashed conch shells upon the lawn. The hallway was dismayingly scrubbed. The kitchen was an exercise in mathematics, with problems worked out in equidistant chairs. The parlor was kept for visitors. Carol suggested, Let's sit in the kitchen. Please don't trouble to light the parlor stove. No trouble at all. My gracious, and you coming so seldom and all and the kitchen is a perfect sight. I try to keep it clean, but Si will track mud all over it. I've spoken to him about it a hundred times if I've spoken once. No, you sit right there, dearie, and I'll make a fire. No trouble at all. Practically, no trouble at all." Mrs. Bogart groaned, rubbed her joints and repeatedly dusted her hands while she made the fire, and when Carol tried to help, she lamented,—'Oh, it doesn't matter guess I ain't good for much but toil and workin' anyway. Seems as though that's what a lot of folks think." The parlor was distinguished by an expanse of rag carpet from which, as they entered, Mrs. Bogart hastily picked one sad dead fly. In the center of the carpet was a rug depicting a red Newfoundland dog, reclining in a green and yellow daisy field and labeled Our Friend. The parlor organ, tall and thin, was adorned with a mirror partly circular, partly square and partly diamond-shaped, and with brackets holding a pot of geraniums, a mouth-organ and a copy of the old-time hymnal. On the center table was a Sears Roebuck mail-order catalogue, a silver frame with photographs of the Baptist Church and of an elderly clergyman, and an aluminum tray containing a rattlesnake's rattle and a broken spectacle-lens. Mrs. Bogart spoke of the eloquence of the Reverend Mr. Zitterl, the coldness of cold days, the price of poplar wood, Dave Dyer's new haircut, and Sy Bogart's essential piety. As I said to his Sunday-school teacher, Sy may be a little wild, but that's because he's got so much better brains than a lot of these boys, and this farmer that claims he caught Sy stealing beggies is a liar and I ought to have the law on him. Mrs. Bogart went thoroughly into the rumor that the girl-waiter at Billy's lunch was not all she might be, or rather was quite all she might be. My lands, what can you expect when everybody knows what her mother was? And if these traveling salesmen would let her alone, she would be all right, though I certainly don't believe she ought to be allowed to think she can pull the wool over our eyes. The sooner she sent to the School for Incorrigible Girls down at Sauk Center, the better for all, and—'Won't you just have a cup of coffee, Carol, dearie? I'm sure you won't mind old Auntie Bogart calling you by your first name, when you think how long I've known Will, and I was such a friend of his dear lovely mother when she lived here, and—'Was that fur cap expensive? But—'Don't you think it's awful the way folks talk in this town?' Mrs. Bogart hitched her chair nearer. Her large face, with its disturbing collection of moles and lone black hairs, wrinkled cunningly. She showed her decayed teeth in a reproving smile, and in the confidential voice of one who scents stale bedroom scandal she breathed, "'I just don't see how folks can talk and act the way they do. You don't know the things that go on under cover. This town—why, it's only the religious training I've given Sy that's kept him so innocent of—things—' Just the other day, I never pay no attention to stories, but I heard it mighty good and straight that Harry Haydock is carrying on with a girl that clerks in a store down in Minneapolis, and poor Juanita not knowing anything about it. Though maybe it's the judgment of God, because before she married Harry she acted up with more than one boy. Well, I don't like to say it, and maybe I ain't up to date, like Si says. But I always believed a lady shouldn't even give names to all sorts of dreadful things. But just the same, I know there was at least one case where Juanita and a boy, well, they were just dreadful, and—and—then there's that old Jensen the grocer, that thinks he's so plaguy smart and I know he made up to a farmer's wife, and—and and this awful man Bjornstam, that does chores, and Nat Hicks, and—there was, it seemed no person in town who was not living a life of shame except Mrs. Bogart, and naturally she resented it. She knew. She had always happened to be there. Once, she whispered, she was going by when an indiscreet window-shade had been left up a couple of inches. Once she had noticed a man and a woman holding hands, and right at a Methodist sociable. Another thing, Heaven knows I never want to start trouble! But, I can't help what I see from my back steps, and I notice your hired girl B carrying on with the grocery boys and all Mrs. Bogart. I trust B as I would myself, oh dearie, you don't understand me. I'm sure she's a good girl, I mean she's green, and I hope that none of these horrid young men that there are around town will get her into trouble. It's their parents' fault letting them run wild and hear evil things. If I had my way, there wouldn't be none of them, not boys nor girls, neither, allowed to know anything about—about things till they was married. It's terrible the bald way that some folks talk. It just shows and gives away what awful thoughts they got inside them, and there's nothing can cure them except coming right to God and kneeling down like I do at prayer-meeting every Wednesday evening and saying, "Oh God! I would be a miserable sinner except for thy grace. I'd make every last one of these brats go to Sunday school and learn to think about nice things, instead of about cigarettes and goings-on. And these dances they have at the lodges are the worst thing that ever happened to this town, lot of young men squeezing girls and finding out—oh, it's dreadful! I've told the mayor he ought to put a stop to them, and—there was one boy in this town, I don't want to be suspicious or uncharitable, but..." It was half an hour before Carol escaped. She stopped on her own porch and thought viciously, "'If that woman is on the side of angels, then I have no choice. I must be on the side of the devil. But isn't she like me? She too wants to reform the town. She too criticizes everybody. She too thinks the men are vulgar and limited am I like her? This is ghastly." That evening she did not merely consent to play cribbage with Kennicott, she urged him to play. And she worked up a hectic interest in land deals and Sam Clark. 8. In courtship days, Kennicott had shown her a photograph of Nels Erdstrom's baby and log cabin, but she had never seen the Erdstroms. They had become merely patients of the doctor. Kennicott telephoned her on a mid-December afternoon. Want to throw on your coat and drive out to the Ernstroms with me? Fairly warm. Nell's got the jaundice." Oh, yes! She hastened to put on woolen stockings, high boots, sweater, muffler, cap, mittens. The snow was too thick and the ruts frozen too hard for the motor. They drove out in a clumsy high carriage. Tucked over them was a blue woolen cover, prickly to her wrists and outside of it a buffalo robe, humble and moth-eaten now, used ever since the bison herds had streaked the prairie a few miles to the west. The scattered houses between which they passed in town were small and desolate in contrast to the expanse of huge snowy yards and wide street. They crossed the railroad tracks and instantly were in the farm country. The big piebald horses snorted clouds of steam and started to trot. The carriage squeaked in rhythm. Kennicott drove with clucks of—'There, boy, take it easy!' He was thinking. He paid no attention to Carol. Yet it was he who commented, "'Pretty nice over there,' as they approached an oak grove where shifty winter sunlight quivered in the hollow between two snowdrifts. They drove from the natural prairie into a clear district which twenty years ago had been forest. The country seemed to stretch unchanging to the North Pole. Low hill, brush, scraggly bottom, reedy creek, muskrat mound, fields with frozen brown clods thrust up through the snow. Her ears and nose were pinched, her breath frosted her collar, her fingers ached. Getting colder, she said. Yep. That was all their conversation for three miles, yet she was happy. They reached Nell's Edstrom's at four and with a throb she recognized the courageous venture which had lured her to Gopher Prairie, the cleared fields, furrows among stumps, a log cabin chinked with mud and roofed with dry hay. But Nels had prospered, he used the log cabin as a barn, and a new house reared up, a proud, unwise Gopher Prairie house, the more naked and ungraceful in its glossy white paint and pink trimmings. Every tree had been cut down. The house was so unsheltered, so battered by the wind, so bleakly thrust out into the harsh clearing, that Carol shivered. But they were welcomed warmly enough in the kitchen, with its crisp new plaster, its blackened nickel range, its cream separator in a corner. Mrs. Erdstrom begged her to sit in the parlour, where there was a phonograph and an oak-and-leather Davenport, the prairie farmers' proofs of social progress but she dropped down by the kitchen stove and insisted, "'Please, don't mind me.' When Mrs. Erstrom had followed the doctor out of the room, Carol glanced in a friendly way at the grained pine cupboard, the framed Lutheran confirmations attest, the traces of fried eggs and sausages on the dining-table against the wall, and a jewel among calendars, presenting not only a lithographic young woman with cherry lips and a Swedish advertisement of Axel Eggie's grocery, but also a thermometer and a match-holder. She saw that a boy of four or five was staring at her from the hall, a boy in gingham shirt and faded corduroy trousers, but large-eyed, firm-mouthed, wide-browed. He vanished, then peeped in again, biting his knuckles, turning his shoulder toward her in shyness. Didn't she remember? What was it? Kennicott sitting beside her at Fort Snelling, urging, "'See how scared that baby is? Need some woman like you." Magic had fluttered about her then, magic of sunset and cool air and the curiosity of lovers. She held out her hands as much to that sanctity as to the boy. He edged into the room, doubtfully sucking his thumb. "'Hello,' she said. "'What's your name?' "'He-he-he.' "'You're quite right. I agree with you. Silly people like me always ask children their names. (laughs) He, he, he! Come here, and I'll tell you the story of—well, I don't know what it will be about, but it will have a slim heroine and a prince charming." He stood stoically while she spun nonsense. His giggling ceased. She was winning him. Then the telephone bell. Two long rings, one short. Mrs. Erdstrom galloped into the room, shrieked into the transmitter. Well, yes, yes, this is Erdstrom's place. Hey! Oh, you want a doctor?" Kennicott appeared, growled into the telephone. Well, what do you want? Oh, hello, Dave. What do you want? Which Morgan Morgonrotha's? Adolph's? All right. Amputation? Yeah, I see. Say, Dave, get Gus to harness up and take my surgical kit down there, and have him take some chloroform. I'll go straight down from here. May not get home tonight. You can get me at Adolph's." Huh? No. Carrie can give the anesthetic, I guess. Goodbye, Huh? No. Tell me about that tomorrow. Too damn many people always listening in on this farmer's line." He turned to Carol. Adolph Morganroth, farmer, ten miles southwest of town, got his arm crushed. Fixing his cowshed and a post caved in on him. Smashed him up pretty bad. May have to amputate, Dave Dyer says. Afraid we'll have to go right from here. Darn sorry to drag you clear down there with me." Please do, don't mind me a bit. Think you could give the anesthetic? Usually have my driver do it. If you'll tell me how. All right. Say, did you hear me putting one over on these goats that are always rubbering in on party wires? I hope they heard me. Well, now Bessie, don't you worry about Nels, he's getting along all right. Tomorrow, you or one of the neighbors drive in and get this prescription filled at Dyer's. Give him a teaspoonful every four hours. Good-bye. Hello. Here's the little fellow. My lord, Bessie, it ain't possible this is the fellow that used to be so sickly. Why say, he's a great big strapping svenska now, going to be bigger'n his daddy!" Kennicott's bluffness made the child squirm with a delight which Carol could not evoke. It was a humble wife who followed the busy doctor out to the carriage, and her ambition was not to play Rachmaninoff better, nor to build town halls, but to chuckle at babies. The sunset was merely a flush of rose on a dome of silver, with oak twigs and thin poplar branches against it, but a silo on the horizon changed from a red tank to a tower of violet misted over with grey. The purple road vanished, and without lights, in the darkness of a world destroyed, they swayed on toward nothing. It was a bumpy cold way to the Morganroth farm, and she was asleep when they arrived. Here was no glaring new house with a proud phonograph, but a low, whitewashed kitchen smelling of cream and cabbage. Adolf Morganroth was lying on a couch in the rarely used dining room. His heavy, work-scarred wife was shaking her hands in anxiety. Carol felt that Kennicott would do something magnificent and startling. But he was casual. He greeted the man. "'Well, well, Adolf, have to fix you up, eh?' Quietly to the wife. "'Hat die drugstore my schwarze bag hier geschickt?' "'So, schon. Wie will ersts?' Sieben? "'None. Lassen uns ein wenig super zuerst haben. Got any of that good beer left? Gib's noch beer?' He had supped in four minutes. His coat off, his sleeves rolled up, he was scrubbing his hands in a tin basin in the sink using the bar of yellow kitchen soap. Carol had not dared to look into the farther room while she labored over the supper of beer, rye bread, moist corn beef, and cabbage set on the kitchen table. The man in there was groaning. In her one glance she had seen that his blue flannel shirt was open at a corded tobacco-brown neck the hollows of which were sprinkled with thin black and gray hairs. He was covered with a sheet, like a corpse, and outside the sheet was his right arm, wrapped in towels, stained with blood. But Kennicott strode into the other room gaily, and she followed him. With surprising delicacy in his large fingers, he unwrapped the towels and revealed an arm which, below the elbow, was a mass of blood and raw flesh. The man bellowed. The room grew thick about her. She was very seasick. She fled to a chair in the kitchen. Through the haze of nausea she heard Kennicott grumbling. "'Afraid it will have to come off, Adolf?' "'What did you do? Fall on a reaper-blade?' "'We'll fix it right up.' "'Carrie!' "'Carol!' She couldn't. She couldn't get up. Then she was up, her knees like water, her stomach revolving a thousand times a second, her eyes filmed her ears full of roaring. She couldn't reach the dining-room. She was going to faint. Then she was in the dining-room, leaning against the wall, trying to smile, flushing hot and cold along her chest and sides, while Kennicott mumbled, Say, help Mrs. Morganroth and me carry him in on the kitchen table. No, first go out and shove those two tables together, and put a blanket on them and a clean sheet. It was salvation to push the heavy tables to scrub them, to be exact in placing the sheet. Her head cleared. She was able to look calmly in at her husband and the farm-wife while they undressed the wailing man, got him into a clean nightgown and washed his arm. Kennicott came to lay out his instruments. She realized that, with no hospital facilities, yet with no worry about it, her her husband—her husband—was going to perform a surgical operation that miraculous boldness of which one read in stories about famous surgeons. She helped them to move Adolf into the kitchen. The man was in such a funk that he would not use his legs. He was heavy, and smelled of sweat and the stable. But she put her arm about his waist, her sleek head by his chest. She tugged at him. She clicked her tongue in imitation of Kennicott's cheerful noises. When Adolf was on the table, Kennicott laid a hemispheric steel and cotton frame on his face. Suggested to Carol. Now, you sit here at his head and keep the ether dripping. About this fast, see? I'll watch his breathing. Look who's here! Real anesthetist! Oxner hasn't got a better one. Class, eh? Now, now, Adolf, take it easy. This won't hurt a bit. Put you all nice and asleep and it won't hurt a bit schweig mal, bald schlaft man, weit ein Kind. So, so, bald geht's besser!" As she let the ether drip, nervously trying to keep the rhythm that Kennicott had indicated, Carol stared at her husband with the abandon of hero-worship. He shook his head. Bad light, bad light! Here, Mrs. Morganroth, you stand right here and hold this lamp. Here, und dieses. Dieses lamp-halten. So! By that streaky glimmer he worked, swiftly, at ease. The room was still. Carol tried to look at him, yet not look at the seeping blood, the crimson slash, the vicious scalpel. The ether fumes were sweet, choking. Her head seemed to be floating away from her body. Her arm was feeble. It was not the blood but the grating of the surgical saw on the living bone that broke her, and she knew that she had to be fighting off nausea, that she was beaten. She was lost in dizziness. She heard Kennicott's voice. "'Sick? Trot outdoors a couple minutes. Adolf will stay under now.' She was fumbling at the doorknob which whirled in insulting circles. She was on the stoop, gasping, forcing air into her chest, her head clearing. As she returned she caught the scene as a whole. The cavernous kitchen, two milk cans a leaden patch by the wall, hams dangling from a beam. Bats of light at the stove door, and in the center, illuminated by a small glass lamp held by a frightened stout woman, Dr. Kennicott bending over a body which was humped under a sheet. The surgeon, his bare arms daubed with blood, his hands, in pale yellow rubber gloves, loosening the tourniquet. His face without emotion, save when he threw up his head and clucked at the farm-wife. Hold that light steady just a second more. Noc bloß He speaks a vulgar, common, incorrect German of life and death and birth and the soil. I read the French and German of sentimental lovers and Christmas garlands. And I thought it was I who had the culture." She worshipped as she returned to her place. After a time he snapped. That's enough. Don't give him any more ether. He was concentrated on tying an artery. His gruffness seemed heroic to her. As he shaped the flap of flesh, she murmured, Oh, you are wonderful! He was surprised. Why, this is a cinch! Now if it had been like last week... Get me some more water. Now last week I had a case with an ooze in the peritoneal cavity, and by golly if it wasn't a stomach ulcer that I hadn't suspected! And... There. Say, I certainly am sleepy. Let's turn in here too late to drive home, and taste to me like a storm coming." 9. They slept on a feather bed with their fur coats over them. In the morning they broke ice in the pitcher, the vast, flowered and gilt pitcher. Kennecott's storm had not come. When they set out it was hazy and growing warmer. After a mile she saw that he was studying a dark cloud in the north. He urged the horses to the run but she forgot his usual haste in wonder at the tragic landscape. The pale snow, the prickles of old stubble, and the clumps of ragged brush faded into a gray obscurity. Under the hillocks were cold shadows, the willows about a farmhouse were agitated by the rising wind, and the patches of bare wood where the bark had peeled away were white as the flesh of a leper. The snowy sloughs were of a harsh flatness, the whole land was cruel and a climbing cloud of slate-edged blackness dominated the sky. Guess we're about in for a blizzard, speculated Kennicott. We can make Ben McGonagall's anyway. Blizzard? Really? Why? But still, we used to think they were fun when I was a girl. Daddy had to stay home from court and we'd stand at the window and watch the snow. Not much fun on the prairie. Get lost. Freeze to death take no chances." He chirruped at the horses. They were flying now, the carriage rocking on the hard ruts. The whole air suddenly crystallized into large damp flakes. The horses and the buffalo robe were covered with snow. Her face was wet. The thin butt of the whip held a white ridge. The air became colder. The snowflakes were harder. They shot in level lines, clawing at her face. She could not see a hundred feet ahead. Kennicott was stern. He bent forward, the reins firm in his coonskin gauntlets. She was certain that he would get through. He always got through things. Save for his presence, the world and all normal living disappeared. They were lost in the boiling snow. He leaned close to Ball, "'Letting the horses have their heads! They'll get us home!' With a terrifying bump they were off the road, slanting with two wheels in the ditch but instantly they were jerked back as the horses fled on. She gasped. She tried to and did not feel brave as she pulled the woolen robe up about her chin. They were passing something like a dark wall on the right. I know that barn! he yelped. He pulled at the reins. Peeping from the covers, she saw his teeth pinch his lower lip, saw him scowl as he slackened and sawed and jerked sharply again at the racing horses. They stopped. Farmhouse there! Put robe around you and come on!" he cried. It was like diving into icy water to climb out of the carriage, but on the ground she smiled at him, her face little and childish and pink above the buffalo robe over her shoulders. In a swirl of flakes which scratched at their eyes like a maniac darkness, he unbuckled the harness. He turned and plodded back, a ponderous, furry figure, holding the horse's bridles. Carol's hand dragging at his sleeve. They came to the cloudy bulk of a barn whose outer wall was directly upon the road. Feeling along it, he found a gate, led them into a yard, into the barn. The interior was warm, it stunned them with its languid quiet. He carefully drove the horses into stalls. Her toes were coals of pain. "'Let's run for the house,' she said. "'Can't, not yet. Might never find it.' might get lost ten feet away from it. Sit over in this stall, near the horses. We'll rush for the house when the blizzard lifts. I'm so stiff, I can't walk." He carried her into the stall, stripped off her overshoes and boots, stopping to blow on his purple fingers as he fumbled at her laces. He rubbed her feet and covered her with the buffalo robe and horse blankets from the pile on the feed box. She was drowsy, hemmed in by the storm. She sighed. You're so strong, and yet so skillful, and not afraid of blood or storm or. used to it. Only thing that's bothered me was a chance the ether fumes might explode last night. I don't understand. Why, Dave, the darn fool, sent me ether instead of chloroform, like I told him. And you know ether fumes are mighty inflammable, especially with that lamp right by the table. But I had to operate, of course. Wound chuck full of barnyard filth that way. You knew all the time that both you and I might have been blown up. You knew it while you were operating. Sure, didn't you? Why, what's the matter? End of chapter 15. Chapter 16 of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 Kennicott was heavily pleased by her Christmas presents, and he gave her a diamond bar-pin. But she could not persuade herself that he was much interested in the rites of the morning, in the tree she had decorated, the three stockings she had hung, the ribbons and gilt seals and hidden messages. He said only, ''Nice way to fix things, all right. What do you say we go down to Jack Elder's and have a game of five hundred this afternoon?'' She remembered her father's Christmas fantasies—the sacred old rag doll at the top of the tree, the score of cheap presents, the punch and carols, the roast chestnuts by the fire, and the gravity with which the judge opened the children's scrawly notes and took cognizance of demands for sled rides, for opinions upon the existence of Santa Claus. She remembered him reading out a long indictment of himself for being a sentimentalist against the peace and dignity of the state of Minnesota. She remembered his thin legs twinkling before their sled. She muttered unsteadily, "'Must run up and put on my shoes. Slipper so cold!' In the not very romantic solitude of the locked bathroom she sat on the slippery edge of the tub and wept. 2. Kennicott had five hobbies—medicine, land investment, carol, motoring and hunting. It is not certain in what order he preferred them. Solid though his enthusiasms were in the matter of medicine, his admiration of this city surgeon, his condemnation of that for tricky ways of persuading country practitioners to bring in surgical patients, his indignation about fee-splitting, his pride in a new X-ray apparatus, none of these beatified him, as did motoring. He nursed his two-year-old Buick even in winter, when it was stored in the stable-garage behind the house. He filled the grease-cups, varnished a fender, removed from beneath the back seat the debris of gloves, copper washers, crumpled maps, dust and greasy rags. Winter noons he wandered out and stared owlishly at the car. He became excited over a fabulous trip we might take next summer. He galloped to the station brought home railway maps and traced motor routes from Gopher Prairie to Winnipeg or Des Moines or Grand Marais, thinking aloud and expecting her to be effusive about such academic questions as, now I wonder if we could stop at Baraboo and break the jump from La Crosse to Chicago. To him motoring was a faith not to be questioned, a high-church cult, with electric sparks for candles and piston-rings possessing the sanctity of altar-vessels. His liturgy was composed of intoned and metrical road comments. They say there's a pretty good hike from Duluth to International Falls. Hunting was equally a devotion, full of metaphysical concepts veiled from Carol. All winter he read sporting catalogs and thought about remarkable past shots. Remember that time when I got two ducks on a long chance just at sunset? At least once a month he drew his favorite repeating shotgun, his pump-gun, from its wrapper of greased Canton flannel. He oiled the trigger and spent silent ecstatic moments aiming at the ceiling. Sunday mornings Carol heard him trudging up to the attic, and there, an hour later, she found him turning over boots, wooden duck decoys, lunch-boxes, or reflectively squinting at old shells, rubbing their brass caps with his sleeve and shaking his head as he thought about their uselessness. He kept the loading tools he had used as a boy—a capper for shotgun shells, a mold for lead bullets. When once, in a housewifely frenzy for getting rid of things, she raged, ''Why don't you give these away?'' He solemnly defended them, ''Well, you can't tell. They might come in handy some day.'' She flushed. She wondered if she was thinking of the child they would have when, as he put it, they were sure they could afford one. Mysteriously aching, nebulously sad, she slipped away, half-convinced but only half-convinced, that it was horrible and unnatural, this postponement of release of mother affection, this sacrifice to her opinionation and to his cautious desire for prosperity. But it would be worse if he were like Sam Clark, insisted on having children, she considered. Then, if Will were the Prince wouldn't I demand his child?" Kennicott's land deals were both financial advancement and favorite game. Driving through the country he noticed which farms had good crops. He heard the news about the restless farmer who was thinking about selling out here and pulling his freight for Alberta. He asked the veterinarian about the value of different breeds of stock. He inquired of Lyman Cass whether or not Einar Geseldsen, really had had a yield of forty bushels of wheat to the acre. He was always consulting Julius Flickerbaugh, who handled more real estate than law, and more law than justice. He studied township maps and read notices of auctions. Thus he was able to buy a quarter section of land for one hundred and fifty dollars an acre, and to sell it in a year or two after installing a cement floor in the barn and running water in the house for one hundred and eighty or even two hundred. He spoke of these details to Sam Clark rather often. In all his games, cars and guns and land, he expected Carol to take an interest. But he did not give her the facts which might have created interest. He talked only of the obvious and tedious aspects, never of his aspirations in finance, nor of the mechanical principles of motors. This month of romance she was eager to understand his hobbies. She shivered in the garage while he spent half an hour in deciding whether to put alcohol or patent non-freezing liquid into the radiator, or to drain out the water entirely. Or no, then I wouldn't want to take her out if it turned warm. Still, of course, I could fill the radiator again. Wouldn't take so awful long, just take a few pails of water. Still, if it turned cold in me again before i drained it course there's some people that put in kerosene, but they say it rots the hose connections and—'Where did I put that lug-wrench?' It was at this point that she gave up being a motorist and retired to the house. In their new intimacy he was more communicative about his practice. He informed her, with the invariable warning not to tell, that Mrs. Sunderquist had another baby coming, that the hired girl at Howland's was in trouble. But when she asked technical questions, he did not know how to answer. When she inquired, Exactly what is the method of taking out the tonsils? He yawned, Tonsillectomy? Why, you just, if there's pus, you operate. Just take them out. Seen the newspaper? What the devil did B do with it? She did not try again. 3. They had gone to the movies. The movies were almost as vital to Kennicott and the other solid citizens of Gopher Prairie as land speculation and guns and automobiles. The feature film portrayed a brave young Yankee who conquered a South American republic. He turned the natives from their barbarous habits of singing and laughing to the vigorous sanity, the pep and punch and go of the North. He taught them to work in factories, to wear classy college clothes, and to shout, Oh, you baby doll! Watch me gather in the Mazuma. He changed nature itself. A mountain which had borne nothing but lilies and cedars and loafing clouds was, by his hustle, so inspirited that it broke out in long wooden sheds and piles of iron ore to be converted into steamers to carry iron ore to be converted into steamers to carry iron ore. The intellectual tension induced by the master film was relieved by a livelier, more lyric, a less philosophical drama, Max Schnarken and the Bathing Suit Babes in a comedy of manners entitled Right on the Coco. Mr. Schnarken was at various high moments a cook, a lifeguard, a burlesque actor, and a sculptor. There was a hotel hallway up which policemen charged, only to be stunned by plaster busts hurled upon them from innumerable doors. If the plot lacked lucidity, the dual motif of legs and pie was clear and sure. Bathing and modeling were equally sound occasions for legs. The wedding scene was but an approach to the thunderous climax when Mr. Schnarkin slipped a piece of custard pie into the clergyman's rear pocket. The audience in the Rosebud movie palace squealed and wiped their eyes. They scrambled under the seats for overshoes, mittens and mufflers while the screen announced that next week Mr. Schnarken might be seen in a new, rip-roaring, extra-special super-feature of the Clean Comedy Corporation entitled, Under Molly's Bed. I'm glad, said Carol to Kennicott as they stooped before the northwest gale which was torturing the barren street, that this is a moral country. We don't allow any of these beastly frank novels. Vice Society and Postal Department won't stand for them. The American people don't like filth." Yes, it's fine. I'm glad we have such dainty romances as "Right on the cocoa instead. Say, what in heck do you think you're trying to do? Kid me?" He was silent. She awaited his anger. She meditated upon his gutter patois, the Boeotian dialect characteristic of Gopher Prairie. He laughed puzzlingly. When they came into the glow of the house he laughed again. He condescended. I've got to hand it to you. You're consistent, all right. I'd have thought that after getting this look in at a lot of good decent farmers, you'd get over this high art stuff, but you hang right on." Well, to herself. He takes advantage of my trying to be good. Tell you, Carrie, there's just three classes of people folks that haven't got any ideas at all, and cranks that kick about everything, and regular guys, the fellows with stick-to-itiveness, that boost and get the world's work done!" Well, I'm probably a crank, she smiled negligently. No, I won't admit it. You do like to talk, but at a showdown you'd prefer Sam Clark to any damn long-haired artist. Oh, well.... Oh, well mockingly. My, we're just going to change everything, aren't we? Going to tell fellows that they have been making movies for ten years how to direct them, and tell architects how to build towns, and make the magazines publish nothing but a lot of highbrow stories about old maids, and about wives that don't know what they want. Oh, we're a terror! Come on now, Carrie, come out of it! Wake up! You've got a fine nerve, kicking about a movie because it shows a few legs why, you're always touting these Greek dancers, or whatever they are, that don't even wear a shimmy." But dear, the trouble with that film! It wasn't that it got in so many legs, but that it giggled coyly and promised to show more of them, and then didn't keep the promise. It was peeping Tom's idea of humor. "'I don't get you. Look here now.' She lay awake while he rumbled with sleep. "'I must go on.' my crank ideas, he calls them. I thought that adoring him, watching him operate, would be enough. It isn't. Not after the first thrill. I don't want to hurt him. But I must go on. It isn't enough, to stand by while he fills an automobile radiator and chucks me bits of information. If I stood by and admired him long enough, I would be content. I would become a nice little woman. The village virus. Already. I'm not reading anything. I haven't touched the piano for a week. I'm letting the days drown in worship of a good deal, ten plunks more per acre. I won't, I won't succumb." How? I failed at everything. The thanatopsis, parties, pioneers, city hall, guy and vida. But it doesn't matter. I'm not trying to reform the town now. I'm not trying to organize Browning clubs and sit in clean white kids yearning up at lectures with ribbony eyeglasses. I'm trying to save my soul. Will Kennicott, asleep there, trusting me, thinks he holds me. And I'm leaving him. All of me left him when he laughed at me. It wasn't enough for him that I admired him. I must change myself and grow like him. He takes advantage. No more. It's finished. I will go on." Four. Her violin lay on top of the upright piano. She picked it up. Since she at last touched it the dried strings had snapped, and upon it lay a gold and crimson cigar band. Five. She longed to see Guy Pollock, for the confirming of the brethren in the faith. But Kennicott's dominance was heavy upon her. She could not determine whether she was checked by fear or him, or by inertia, by dislike of the emotional labor of the scenes which would be involved in asserting independence. She was like the revolutionist at fifty. Not afraid of death, but bored by the probability of bad stakes and bad breaths and sitting up all night on windy barricades. The second evening after the movies she impulsively summoned Vida Sherwin and Guy to the house for popcorn and cider. In the living-room, Vida and Kennicott debated, the value of manual training in grades below the eighth, while Carol sat beside Guy at the dining-table, buttering popcorn. She was quickened by the speculation in his eyes. She murmured, Guy, do you want to help me? My dear, how? I don't know. He waited. I think I want you to help me find out what has made the darkness of the women, gray darkness and shadowy trees. We're all in it, ten million women, young married women with good prosperous husbands and business women in linen collars and grandmothers that gad out to teas, and wives of underpaid miners, and farm-wives, who really like to make butter and go to church. What is it we want, and need?" Will Kennicott there would say that we need lots of children and hard work. But it isn't that. There's the same discontent in women with eight children and one more coming, always one more coming and you find it in stenographers and wives who scrub, just as much as in girl college graduates who wonder how they can escape their kind parents. What do we want?" "'Essentially, I think, you are like myself, Carol. You want to go back to an age of tranquillity and charming manners. You want to enthrone good taste again.' "'Just good taste? Fastidious people? Oh, no. I believe all of us want the same things we're all together—the industrial workers and the women and the farmers and the negro race and the Asiatic colonies, and even a few of the respectables. It's all the same revolt, in all the classes that have waited and taken advice. I think perhaps we want a more conscious life. We're tired of drudging and sleeping and dying. We're tired of seeing just a few people able to be individualists. We're tired of always deferring hope till the next generation. We're tired of hearing the politicians and priests and cautious reformers and the husbands coax us, be calm, be patient, wait, we have the plans for a utopia already made, just give us a bit more time and we'll produce it. Trust us. We're wiser than you." For ten thousand years they've said that. We want our utopia now and we're going to try our hands at it. All we want is... everything for all of us. For every housewife and every longshoreman and every Hindu nationalist and every teacher. We want everything. We shan't get it. So we shan't ever be content." She wondered why he was wincing. He broke in. "'See here, my dear, I certainly hope you don't clash yourself with a lot of trouble-making labor-leaders. Democracy is all right, theoretically, and I'll admit there are industrial injustices, but I'd rather have them than see the world reduced to a dead level of mediocrity. I refuse to believe that you have anything in common with a lot of laboring men rowing for bigger wages so that they can buy wretched flivvers and hideous player-pianos and.... At this second, in Buenos Aires, a newspaper editor broke his routine of being bored by exchanges to assert any injustice is better than seeing the world reduced to a gray level of scientific dullness. At this second a clerk standing at the bar of a New York saloon stopped milling his secret fear of his nagging office manager long enough to growl at the chauffeur beside him. Ah, you socialists make me sick! I'm an individualist! I ain't going to be nagged by no bureaus and take orders off labor leaders! And me to say a hobo's as good as you and me! At this second Carol realized that, for all Guy's love of dead elegances, his timidity was as depressing to her as the bulkiness of Sam Clark. She realized that he was not a mystery, as she had excitedly believed—not a romantic messenger from the world outside on whom she could count for escape. He belonged to Gopher Prairie, absolutely. She was snatched back from a dream of far countries and found herself on Main Street he was completing his protest. "'You don't want to be mixed up in all this orgy of meaningless discontent!' She soothed him. "'No, I don't. I'm not heroic. I'm scared by all the fighting that's going on in the world. I want nobility and adventure. But perhaps I want still more to curl on the hearth with someone I love.' "'Would you—' He did not finish it. He picked up a handful of popcorn let it run through his fingers, looked at her wistfully. With the loneliness of one who has put away a possible love, Carol saw that he was a stranger. She saw that he had never been anything but a frame on which she had hung shining garments. If she had let him definitely make love to her, it was not because she cared, but because she did not care, because it did not matter. She smiled at him with the exasperating tactfulness of a woman checking a flirtation, a smile like an airy pat on the arm. She sighed. You're a dear to let me tell you my imaginary troubles. She bounced up and trilled, Shall we take the popcorn into them now? Guy looked after her desolately. While she teased Vida and Kennicott she was repeating, I must go on. 6. Miles Bjornstam, the pariah Red Swede, had brought his circular saw and portable gasoline engine to the house, to cut the cords of poplar for the kitchen range. Kennicott had given the order. Carol knew nothing of it till she heard the ringing of the saw, and glanced out to see Bornstom, in black leather jacket and enormous ragged purple mittens, pressing sticks against the whirling blade, and flinging the stove-lengths to one side. The red irritable motor kept up a red, irritable, Tip, 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 tip. The whine of the saw rose till it simulated the shriek of a fire alarm whistle at night, but always at the end it gave a lively metallic clang, and in the stillness she heard the flump of the cut stick falling on the pile. She threw a motor robe over her, ran out. Bjornstam welcomed her. Well, 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 here's old Miles, fresh as ever. Well, say, that's all right. He ain't even begun to be cheeky yet. Next summer he is going to take you out on his horse trading trip, clear into Idaho. Yes, and I may go. How's Tricks? Crazy about the town yet? No, but I probably shall be, some day. Don't let him get you. Kick him in the face. He shouted at her while he worked. The pile of stove wood grew astonishingly. The pale bark of the poplar sticks was mottled with lichens of sage-green and dusty gray. The newly sawed ends were fresh-colored, with the agreeable roughness of a woolen muffler. To the sterile winter air the wood gave a scent of March sap. Kennicott telephoned that he was going into the country. Bjornstam had not finished his work at noon, and she invited him to have dinner with B in the kitchen. She wished that she were independent enough to dine with these her guests, she considered their friendliness, she sneered at social distinctions, she raged at her own taboos, and she continued to regard them as retainers and herself as a lady. She sat in the dining-room and listened through the door to Bjornstam's booming and bee's giggles. She was the more absurd to herself in that, after the rite of dining alone, she could go out to the kitchen, lean against the sink and talk to them. They were attracted to each other—a Swedish Othello and Desdemona, more useful and amiable than their prototypes. Bjornstam told his scapes—selling horses in a Montana mining camp, breaking a log jam, being impertinent to a two-fisted millionaire lumberman. B. gurgled, Oh, my, and kept his coffee-cup filled. He took a long time to finish the wood. He had frequently to go into the kitchen to get warm. Carol heard him confiding to B, You're a darn nice, sweet girl. I guess if I had a woman like you I wouldn't be such a sore head. Gosh, your kitchen is clean! Makes an old batch feel sloppy. Say, that's nice hair you got. Huh? Me fresh? Say, girl, if I ever do get fresh you'll know it. Why?" I could pick you up with one finger and hold you in the air long enough to read Robert J. Ingersoll clean through. Ingersoll? Oh, he's a religious writer. Sure, you'd like him fine." When he drove off he waved to B, and Carol, lonely at the window above, was envious of their pastoral. And I... but I will go on. End of chapter 16 Chapter 17 of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 17. They were driving down the lake to the cottages that moonlit January night, twenty of them in the bobsled. They sang Toyland and Seeing Nellie Home. They leaped from the low back of the sled to race over the slippery snow ruts and when they were tired they climbed on the runners for a lift. The moon-tipped flakes kicked up by the horses settled over the revelers and dripped down their necks, but they laughed, yelped, beat their leather mittens against their chests. The harness rattled, the sleigh-bells were frantic, Jack Elder Setter sprang beside the horses, barking. For a time Carol raced with them. The cold air gave fictive power. She felt that she could run all night, leap twenty feet at a stride but the excess of energy tired her and she was glad to snuggle under the comforters which covered the hay in the sled-box. In the midst of the babble she found enchanted quietude. Along the road the shadows from oak branches were inked on the snow like bars of music. Then the sled came out on the surface of Lake Minimashi. Across the thick ice was a veritable road, a short cut for farmers. On the glaring expanse of the lake, Levels of hard crust, flashes of green ice blown clear, chains of drifts ribbed like the sea-beach, the moonlight was overwhelming. It stormed on the snow, it turned the woods ashore into crystals of fire. The night was tropical and voluptuous. In that drugged magic there was no difference between heavy heat and insinuating cold. Carol was dream strayed. The turbulent voices, even Guy Pollock being connotative beside her, were nothing. She repeated, "'Deep on the convent roof the snows are sparkling to the moon.' The words and the light blurred into one vast indefinite happiness, and she believed that some great thing was coming to her. She withdrew from the clamor into a worship of incomprehensible gods. The night expanded. She was conscious of the universe, and all mystery stooped down to her. She was jarred out of her ecstasy as the bobsled bumped up the steep road to the bluff where stood the cottages. They dismounted at Jack Elder's shack. The interior walls of unpainted boards, which had been grateful in August, were forbidding in the chill. In fur coats and mufflers tied over caps they were a strange company, bears and walruses talking. Jack Elder lighted the shavings waiting in the belly of a cast-iron stove, which was like an enlarged bean-pot. They piled their wraps high on a rocker and cheered the rocker as it solemnly tipped over backward. Mrs. Elder and Mrs. Sam Clark made coffee in an enormous blackened tin pot. Vida Sherwin and Mrs. McGannum unpacked doughnuts and gingerbread. Mrs. Dave Dyer warmed up hot dogs, frankfurters and rolls. Dr. Terry Gould, after announcing, Ladies and gents, prepare to be shocked. Shock line forms on the right, produced a bottle of bourbon whiskey. The others danced, muttering, Ouch! as their frosted feet struck the pine planks. Carol had lost her dream. Harry Haydock lifted her by the waist and swung her. She laughed. The gravity of the people who stood apart and talked made her the more impatient for frolic. Kennicott, Sam Clark, Jackson Elder, young Dr. McGannum, and James Madison Howland, teetering on their toes near the stove, conversed with the sedate pomposity of the commercialist. In details the men were unlike, yet they said the same things in the same hearty, monotonous voices. You had to look at them to see which was speaking. "'Well, we made pretty good time coming up—from one, any one.' Yup. We hit it up after we struck the good going on the lake. Seems kinda slow, though, after driving an auto. Yup, it does at that. Say, how'd you make out with that Sphinx tire you got? Seems to hold out fine. Still, I don't know's I like it any better than the road eater cord. Yup, nothing better than a road eater. Especially the cord. The cord's lots better than the fabric. Yup, you said something. Road Eater's a good tire. Say, How'd you come out with that Pete Garsheim on his payments?" He's paying up pretty good. That's a nice piece of land he's got. Yup, that's a dandy farm. Yup, Pete's got a good place there." They glided from these serious topics into the jocose insults which are the wit of Main Street. Sam Clark was particularly apt at them. What's this wild-eyed sale of summer caps you think you're trying to pull off? he clamored at Harry Haydock. Did you steal them? are you just overcharging us as usual?" Oh say, speaking about caps, did I ever tell you the good one I got on Will? The Doc thinks he's a pretty good driver, fact, he thinks he's almost got human intelligence, but one time he had his machine out in the rain, and the poor fish he had put on chains, and thinks I.... Carol had heard the story rather often. She fled back to the dancers and at Dave Dyer's master stroke of dropping an icicle down Mrs. McGannum's back she applauded hysterically. They sat on the floor, devouring the food. The men giggled amiably as they passed the whiskey-bottle and laughed, there's a real sport, when Juanita Haydock took a sip. Carol tried to follow, she believed that she desired to be drunk and riotous, but the whiskey choked her and as she saw Kennicott frown she handed the bottle on repentantly somewhat too late, she remembered that she had given up domesticity and repentance. "'Let's play charades,' said Ramy Weatherspoon. "'Oh yes, do let us,' said Ella Stowbody. "'That's the caper,' sanctioned Harry Haydock. They interpreted the word making as may and king. The crown was a red flannel mitten cocked on Sam Clark's broad pink bald head. They forgot they were respectable they made believe." Carol was stimulated to cry. "'Let's form a dramatic club and give a play, shall we? It's been so much fun tonight. They looked affable. "'Sure!' observed Sam Clark loyally. "'Oh, do let us. I think it would be lovely to present Romeo and Juliet,' yearned Ella Stowbody. "'Be a whale of a lot of fun!' Dr. Terry Gould granted. "'But if we did,' Carol cautioned. It would be awfully silly to have amateur theatricals. We ought to paint our own scenery and everything, and really do something fine. There would be a lot of hard work." Would you... would we all be punctual at rehearsals, do you suppose? You bet! Sure, that's the idea. Fellow ought to be prompt at rehearsals, they all agreed. Then let's meet next week and form the Gopher Prairie Dramatic Association," Carol sang. She drove home loving these friends who raced through moonlit snow, had bohemian parties, and were about to create beauty in the theatre. Everything was solved. She would be an authentic part of the town, yet escape the coma of the village virus. She would be free of Kennicott again, without hurting him, without his knowing. She had triumphed. The moon was small and high now, and unheeding. Two. Though they had all been certain that they longed for the privilege of attending committee meetings and rehearsals, the dramatic association as definitely formed consisted only of Kennicott, Carol, Guy Pollock, Vida Sherwin, Ella Stowbody, the Harry Haydocs, the Dave Dyers, Ramy Weatherspoon, Dr. Terry Gould, and four new candidates—Flirtatious Rita Simons, Dr. and Mrs. Harvey Dillon, and Myrtle Cass an uncomely but intense girl of nineteen. Of these fifteen, only seven came to the first meeting. The rest telephoned their unparalleled regrets and engagements and illnesses, and announced that they would be present at all other meetings through eternity. Carol was made president and director. She had added the Dillons. Despite Kennicott's apprehension, the dentist and his wife had not been taken up by the Westlakes, but had remained as definitely outside really smart society as Willis Woodford, who was teller, bookkeeper and janitor in the Stowbody's bank. Carol had noted Mrs. Dillon dragging past the house during a bridge of the Jolly Seventeen, looking in with pathetic lips at the splendor of the accepted. She impulsively invited the Dillons to the dramatic association meeting, and when Kennicott was brushed to them she was unusually cordial and felt virtuous. That self-approval balanced her disappointment at the smallness of the meeting, and her embarrassment during Ramey Weatherspoon's repetitions of, "'The stage needs uplifting,' and, "'I believe that there are great lessons in some plays.'" Ella Stobody, who was a professional, having studied elocution in Milwaukee, disapproved of Carol's enthusiasm for recent plays. Miss Stobody expressed the fundamental principle of the American drama. The only way to be artistic is to present Shakespeare. As no one listened to her, she sat back and looked like Lady Macbeth. 3. The little theatres which were to give piquancy to American drama three or four years later were only in embryo. But of this fast coming revolt, Carol had premonitions. She knew from some lost magazine article that in Dublin were innovators called the Irish Players. She knew confusedly that a man named Gordon Craig had painted scenery, or had he written plays. She felt that in the turbulence of the drama she was discovering a history more important than the commonplace chronicles which dealt with senators and their pompous puerilities. She had a sense of familiarity, a dream of sitting in a Brussels café and going afterward to a tiny gay theatre under a cathedral wall. The advertisement in the Minneapolis paper leapt from the page to her eyes. The Cosmos School of Music, Oratory and Dramatic Art announces a program of four one-act plays, by Schnitzler, Shaw, Yeats and Lord Dunsany. She had to be there. She begged Kennicott to run down to the cities with her. Well, I don't know. Be fun to take in a show, but why the deuce do you want to see those darn foreign plays, given by a lot of amateurs? Why don't you wait for a regular play later on? There's going to be some corkers coming. Lottie of Two-Gun Rancho and Cops and Crooks, real Broadway stuff, with the New York casts! What's this junk you went to see? Hm! How he lied to her husband! That doesn't listen so bad. Sounds racy. And, uh, well, I could go to the Motor Show, I suppose. I'd like to see this new Hup Roadster. Well..." She never knew which attraction made him decide. She had four days of delightful worry, over the hole in her one good silk petticoat, the loss of a string of beads from her chiffon and brown velvet frock, the catsup stain on her best Georgette crepe blouse. She wailed, I haven't a single solitary thing that's fit to be seen in, and enjoyed herself very much indeed. Kennicott went about casually letting people know that he was going to run down to the cities and see some shows. As the train plodded through the gray prairie, on a windless day, with the smoke from the engine clinging to the fields in giant cotton-rolls, in a low, writhing wall which shut off the snowy fields, she did not look out of the window. She closed her eyes and hummed, and did not know what she was humming. She was the young poet attacking fame and Paris. In the Minneapolis station, the crowd of lumberjacks, farmers and Swedish families, with numerous children and grandparents and paper parcels, their foggy crowding and their clamor confused her. She felt rustic in this once familiar city, after a year and a half of Gopher Prairie. She was certain that Kennicott was taking the wrong trolley car. By dusk the liquor warehouses, Hebraic clothing shops and lodging houses on lower Hennepin Avenue were smoky, hideous, ill-tempered. She was battered by the noise and shuttling of the rush-hour traffic. When a clerk in an overcoat too closely fitted at the waist stared at her, she moved nearer to Kennicott's arm. The clerk was flippant and urban. He was a superior person, used to this tumult. Was he laughing at her? For a moment, she wanted the secure quiet of Gopher Prairie. In the hotel lobby, she was self-conscious. She was not used to hotels. She remembered with jealousy how often Juanita Haydock talked of the famous hotels in Chicago. She could not face the traveling salesman, baronial in large leather chairs. She wanted people to believe that her husband and she were accustomed to luxury and chill elegance. She was faintly angry at him for the vulgar way in which, after signing the register, Dr. W. P. Kennicott and wife, he bellowed at the clerk, "'Got a nice room with a bath for us, old man?' She gazed about haughtily, but as she discovered that no one was interested in her, she felt foolish, and ashamed of her irritation. She asserted, "'This silly lobby is too florid,' and simultaneously she admired it. The onyx columns with gilt capitals, the crown-embroidered velvet curtains at the restaurant door, the silk-roped alcove where pretty girls perpetually waited for mysterious men, the two-pound boxes of candy and the variety of magazines at the newsstand. The hidden orchestra was lively. She saw a man who looked like a European diplomat, in a loose topcoat and a Homburg hat. A woman with a broad-tail coat, a heavy lace veil, pearl earrings and a close black hat entered the restaurant. "'Heavens! That's the first really smart woman I've seen in a year!' Carol exulted. She felt metropolitan. But as she followed Kennicott to the elevator, the coat-check girl, a confident young woman, with cheeks powdered like lime and a blouse low and thin and furiously crimson, inspected her, and under that supercilious glance Carol was shy again. She unconsciously waited for the bellboy to precede her into the elevator. When he snorted, ''Go ahead!'' she was mortified. He thought she was a hayseed, she worried. The moment she was in their room, with the bellboy safely out of the way, she looked critically at Kennicott. For the first time in months she really saw him. His clothes were too heavy and provincial. His decent gray suit, made by Nat Hicks of Gopher Prairie, might have been of sheet-iron. It had no distinction of cut, no easy grace like the diplomat's Burberry. His black shoes were blunt and not well polished. His scarf was a stupid brown. He needed a shave. But she forgot her doubt as she realized the ingenuities of the room. She ran about, turning on the taps of the bathtub, which gushed instead of dribbling like the taps at home, snatching the new wash rag out of its envelope of oiled paper, trying the rose-shaded light between the twin beds, pulling out the drawers of the kidney-shaped walnut desk to examine the engraved stationery, planning to write on it to everyone she knew, admiring the claret-colored velvet armchair and the blue rug testing the ice-water tap and squealing happily when the water really did come out cold. She flung her arms about Kennicott, kissed him. "'Like it, old lady? It's adorable! It's so amusing! I love you for bringing me! You really are a dear!' He looked blankly indulgent and yawned and condescended. "'That's a pretty slick arrangement on the radiator, so you can adjust it at any temperature you want.' Must take a big furnace to run this place. Gosh, I hope B remembers to turn off the drafts tonight. Under the glass cover of the dressing-table was a menu with the most enchanting dishes. Breast of guinea hen de fitresse, pomme de terre à la rousse, meringue chantilly, gâteau bruchelles. Oh, let's I'm going to have a hot bath and put on my new hat with the wool flowers, and let's go down and eat for hours. And we'll have a cocktail," she chanted. While Kennicott labored over ordering it was annoying to see him permit the waiter to be impertinent, but as the cocktail elevated her to a bridge among colored stars, as the oysters came in—not canned oysters in the gopher prairie fashion, but on the half-shell—she cried, If you only knew how wonderful it is not to have to plan this dinner, and order it at the butcher's and fuss and think about it, and then watch Bee cook it! I feel so free! And to have new kinds of food and different patterns of dishes and linen, and not worry about whether the pudding is being spoiled! Oh, this is a great moment for me!" Four. They had all the experiences of provincials in a metropolis. After breakfast Carol bustled to a hairdresser's, bought gloves and a blouse, and importantly, met Kennicott in front of an optician's in accordance with plans laid down, revised and verified. They admired the diamonds and furs and frosty silverware and mahogany chairs and polished morocco sewing-boxes in shop-windows, and were abashed by the throngs in the department stores, and were bullied by a clerk into buying too many shirts for Kennicott, and gaped at the clever novelty perfumes, just in from New York. Carol got three books on the theater and spent an exultant hour in warning herself that she could not afford this Rajah silk frock, in thinking how envious it would make Juanita Haydock, in closing her eyes and buying it. Kennicott went from shop to shop, earnestly hunting down a felt-covered device to keep the windshield of his car clear of rain. They dined extravagantly at their hotel at night, and next morning sneaked round the corner to economize at a child's restaurant. They were tired by three in the afternoon and dozed at the motion pictures and said they wished they were back in Gopher Prairie. And by eleven in the evening they were again so lively that they went to a Chinese restaurant that was frequented by clerks and their sweethearts on paydays. They sat at a teak and marble table eating eggs foo young and listened to a brassy automatic piano and were altogether cosmopolitan. On the street they met people from home, the McGannams. They laughed, shook hands repeatedly, and exclaimed, ''Well, this is quite a coincidence!'' They asked when the McGannams had come down and begged for news of the town they had left two days before. Whatever the McGannams were at home, here they stood out as so superior to all the undistinguishable strangers absurdly hurrying past that the Kennicots held them as long as they could. The McGannams said good-bye, as though they were going to Tibet instead of to the station to catch No. 7 north. They explored Minneapolis. Kennicott was conversational and technical regarding gluten and cockle cylinders and No. 1 hard, when they were shown through the gray stone hulks and new cement elevators of the largest flour mills in the world. They looked across Loring Park and the parade to the Towers of St. Mark's and the Pro Cathedral and the red roofs of houses climbing Kenwood Hill. They drove about the chain of garden-circled lakes, and viewed the houses of the millers and lumbermen and real estate peers, the potentates of the expanding city. They surveyed the small eccentric bungalows with pergolas, the houses of pebbledash and tapestry brick with sleeping porches above sun parlors, and one vast incredible chateau fronting the lake of the Isles. They tramped through a shining new section of apartment-houses, not the tall bleak apartments of eastern cities, but low structures of cheerful yellow brick, in which each flat had its glass-enclosed porch with swinging couch and scarlet cushions and Russian brass bowls. Between a waste of tracks and a raw gouged hill they found poverty in staggering shanties. They saw miles of the city which they had never known in their days of absorption in college. They were distinguished explorers, and they were marked, in great mutual esteem. I bet Harry hayducks never seen the city like this. Why, he'd never have sense enough to study the machinery in the mills, or go through all these outlying districts. Wonder folks in Gopher Prairie wouldn't use their legs and explore the way we do." They had two meals with Carol's sister and were bored, and felt that intimacy which beatifies married people when they suddenly admit that they equally dislike a relative of either of them. So it was with affection but also with weariness that they approached the evening on which Carol was to see the plays at the dramatic school. Kennicott suggested not going. So darn tired from all this walking. Don't know but what we'd better turn in early and get rested up. It was only from duty that Carol dragged him and herself out of the warm hotel into a stinking trolley up the brownstone steps of the converted residence which lugubriously housed the dramatic school. 5 They were in a long whitewashed hall with a clumsy draw-curtain across the front. The folding chairs were filled with people who looked washed and ironed, parents of the pupils, girls' students, dutiful teachers. "'Strikes me it's going to be punk. If the first play isn't good, let's beat it,' said Kennicott hopefully. All right," she yawned. With hazy eyes she tried to read the lists of characters, which were hidden among lifeless advertisements of pianos, music dealers, restaurants, candy. She regarded the Schnitzler play with no vast interest. The actors moved and spoke stiffly. Just as its cynicism was beginning to rouse her village dull frivolity, it was over. Don't take a whale of a lot of that. How about taking a sneak? petitioned Kennicott. Oh, let's try the next one, How He Lied to Her Husband!" The shaw conceit amused her and perplexed Kennicott. "'Strikes me it's darn fresh. Thought it would be racy. Don't knows I think much of a play where a husband actually claims he wants a fellow to make love to his wife. No husband ever did that. Shall we shake a leg?' I want to see this Yeats thing, Land of Hearts Desire. I used to love it in college. She was awake now and urgent. I know you didn't care so much for Yates when I read him aloud to you, but you just see if you don't adore him on the stage." Most of the cast were as unwieldy as oak chairs marching, and the setting was an arty arrangement of batik scarfs and heavy tables, but Mare Bruin was slim as Carol and larger-eyed and her voice was a morning bell. In her Carol lived, and on her lifting voice, was transported from this sleepy small-town husband and all the rows of polite parents to the stilly loft of a thatched cottage, where, in a green dimness, beside a window caressed by linden branches, she bent over a chronicle of twilight women and the ancient gods. "'Well, gosh! Nice kid played that girl! Good looker!' said Kennicott. "'Want to stay for the last piece, eh?' She shivered. She did not answer. The curtain was again drawn aside. On the stage they saw nothing but long green curtains and a leather chair. Two young men in brown robes, like furniture covers, were gesturing vacuously and droning cryptic sentences full of repetitions. It was Carol's first hearing of Dunsany. She sympathized with the restless Kennicott as he felt in his pocket for a cigar and unhappily put it back. Without understanding when or how, without a tangible change in the stilted intoning of the stage-puppets, she was conscious of another time and place. Stately and aloof among vainglorious tiring maids, a queen in robes that murmured on the marble floor, she trod the gallery of a crumbling palace. In the courtyard elephants trumpeted, and swart men with beards dyed crimson stood with blood-stained hands folded upon their hilts, guarding the caravan from Air Charnac the camels with tyrian stuffs of topaz and cinnabar. Beyond the turrets of the outer wall the jungle glared and shrieked, and the sun was furious above drenched orchids. A youth came striding through the steel boss doors, the sword-bitten doors that were higher than ten tall men. He was inflexible male, and under the rim of his planished Morion were amorous curls. His hand was out to her. Before she touched it she could feel its warmth. Gosh, all hemlock! What the dickens is all this stuff about, Carrie? She was no Syrian queen; she was Mrs. Doctor Kennicott. She fell with a jolt into a whitewashed hall and sat looking at two scared girls and a young man in wrinkled tights. Kennicott fondly rambled as they left the hall. What the deuce did that lash be? O mean, could make head or tail of it. If that's highbrow drama, give me a cowpuncher movie every time thank God that's over and we can go to bed. Wonder if we wouldn't make time by walking over to Nicolette to take a car. One thing I'll say for that dump, they had it warm enough. Must have a big hot air furnace, I guess. Wonder how much cold it takes to run them through the winter." In the car he affectionately patted her knee, and he was for a second the striding youth in armor. Then he was Dr. Kennicott of Gopher Prairie, and she was recaptured by Main Street. Never, not all her life, would she behold jungles and the tombs of kings. There were strange things in the world, they really existed, but she would never see them. She would recreate them in plays. She would make the Dramatic Association understand her aspiration. They would, surely they would! She looked doubtfully at the impenetrable reality of yawning trolley conductor and sleepy passengers and placards advertising soap and underwear. End of chapter seventeen. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for one twenty nine each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon.